that case. Hope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backward thinking, virtue sick, virtue signaling, fake news crack. Hello and welcome to the Hope Not Hate podcast. Earlier today, my colleague Joe Mulhall sat down with Dave Renton. Dave is a barrister, a historian of the anti-fascist movement and an activist himself. He recently published a book called Never Again, the history of Rock Against Racism, the Anti-Nazi League and their fight against the National Front in the late 70s and early 80s. With the rise of new forms of street movement, Joe and Dave chatted about what worked in the past how we can repeat those successes, and how we need to try and avoid just simply repeating the tactics that worked back then. So you've got a new book out. Um, If you could tell us what it's about, or start with the title for us, and then tell us a little bit, kind of a brief overview of what the book's about. Okay, it's called Never Again, and it's a history of Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League, which were two movements in 1970s Britain. And it's really the story of... Well, first of all, it's the story of the National Front, who they were trying to oppose, and it's the story of the mass campaign that, that they ran against the National Front, which in essence, I argue, was a um, very successful um, move in terms of limiting the far right at that stage of its growth. I mean, many of the listeners, and I've certainly read it, We Touched the Sky, um, came previously. Um, is this a brand new book? I mean, I noticed that is this, in many senses this book feels like a brand new book. There's so much difference compared to the original. Um, is this kind of an update, would you argue? I mean, I think it's probably much more than just an update. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, genuinely it was one of the things which I was I wasn't totally sure of when I was writing the book because what happened is is back in about 2007 I, I published the previous book When We Touched the Sky which was um, concentrated um, very much more on the anti-Nazi league than rock against racism um, the publisher went bust <laughs> the, the book actually did pretty well it had um, great reviews in The Guardian and all sorts of places but, um, it went, um, but the publisher went bust so it was very hard to get hold of the book you can get it on Amazon right now for like £100, which is ridiculous. All right, I'll sell mine. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I thought, look, I wanted to do initially, um, Routledge said, because they've got a series of books which are about the far right, um, they said, let's do a second edition. But, but there was a moment when I was writing it and, and, I, was, and I was actually talking to, um, to my, my older son, I was showing him the text because he, he writes um, novels and we, all, we, we often talk about, you know, um, how you improve a book by rewriting it. So I showed him. And I realised that in the first 50 pages of the, the new edition, supposedly the new edition of the same book, there literally wasn't a single word <laughs> right. which, which appeared in, 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 the, in the first and the second edition. At that point, I thought, no, no, this really is a new book. Um, and, and some of the things which, which made it possible to write a new book, um, I mean, two things I want to mention. Firstly, um, there's a lot of new material in archives which um, wasn't available 10 years ago. Um, for example, the death of Blair Peach. We now have the records of the police inquiry. Um, Searchlight magazine donated its archives. They're now um, there's something which anyone can access. But but that goes back to this this immense treasure trove of you know infiltrators and other people um, involved in the group. So that's all new material I could work in. But there were also you know a lot a lot had moved on um, in life and in terms of the history of the far right. One of the things which was pretty clear to me, for example was that I'd, I'd thought about the National Front as being quite simply, you know, this neo-Nazi revivalist group. And when I looked about what was going on the far right today, it seemed to me that, that, that actually, if you look more closely at the National Front, in light of what we know today, in some ways the National Front actually is more like the far right now than, than people realised at the time. Brilliant. I mean, I really want to come on to that maybe slightly later on about some of the more contemporary stuff. But let's start with the National Front. Starts in, is it 1967? Uh, but this book's kind of obviously mainly focusing on the 1970s. We're going to come on and talk about, as you say, the anti-Nazi league, rock against racism, the reaction of the anti-fascist movement, but start off with the threat. What was the National Front looking like in the 1970s? What threat did it pose in Britain? How important was it? OK. Well, I mean, first, uh, firstly, there's a question of like what it is, and the second question is how it was doing. In terms of what it is, the way I'd see it now is that in terms of the history of um, fascism and the far right since 1945, 
essentially the closer you are to the Second World War, the more that the far right had its model of how it could organise, and that was Hitler and Mussolini. And the more that you've got essentially people who are the same people who'd been involved in the 1930s, just trying to create, um, um, historians use the word mimetic, copying fascist movements. Now, by the time you get to the 1970s, there's already some distance from that. And there'd been a process of kind of, um, to some extent, of individuals who'd been absolutely hardcore neo-Nazis reappraising whether that could work. And and the key figure then is John Tyndall. Um, John Tyndall in the 1960s is involved in parties like the Greater British Movement. There's a very famous photograph of him in that period, essentially wearing neo-Nazi uniforms. If you read his magazine Spearhead in that period... Um, it's full of, you know, Germanisms. We need, we need to have a British Volksgemeinschaft of the Anglo-Saxon peoples. And all sorts of really strange stuff, you know, um, written in Gothic script, copied from Germany and so on. But, but the point is, is that by the late 60s and 70s, Tyndall was starting to see that essentially there were limits to how far the neo-Nazi model could grow. And, and what he was far more trying to build through the National Front was something that was far more an electoralist far-right organisation, like the very large numbers of electoralist far-right groups we see today. But the point is, is that the National Front leaders, they had a notion of where they wanted to take the party, but they didn't have um, any real sense of how to get it there. And... Um, they had, um, they didn't have, like today, um, you know, there was one other successful electoral far-right party in Europe, the MSI, and that was all. There wasn't anyone else for them to copy. And, of course, they also had the problem that in their party there were loads and loads of people who just wanted to have a pure, old-fashioned, neo-Nazi sect. So the National Front's kind of like this hybrid that's moving away from a model but hasn't gone very far and doesn't really understand where the next step would be and what that would look like. Um, but, but with this sort of this history, this, this far-right party that's moving away from fascism, but only to a very limited extent, um, it does well. That's the point. Um, in terms of elections, Martin Webster, the national organiser of the National Front, wins um, 16% of the vote um, at West Bromwich in a by-election in 1973. Um, that figure, 16%, is the same 16% that the Front National in France was able to win at Dreux um, about um, eight, nine years later, and was able to was the start of its breakthrough. It doesn't become a breakthrough for the National Front in Britain, but, it, but that possibility is there. And again, um, through elections in 76, 77, the National Front's getting um, 40,000 votes in Leicester, 100,000 votes in London. Um, it's seriously challenging the Liberals to become um, the third main electoral party in Britain. And so, I guess on a slight aside, if we're looking at... We talk about these modernisation programmes that the European far-right goes through in this period. And as you mentioned, France, that's always held up as the first big breakthrough. And these are the movements that then go on to be much more successful in later decades. Do you think it might be possible then to argue that we can see the National Front in that modernisation process as well? And they were one of the early, if not the earliest, breakthrough. Definitely. I mean, I mean... it, it, it's not just about the National Front or the Front National. There's obviously also the MSI, and the MSI has been doing well in Italian elections consistently through the, the 60s and, and 70s. Um, but, but if you think, if you take the example of the Front National in France, which we, we, all, we normally see as the breakthrough, bear in mind that between its formation in 1974 and 1984, it stands in something like three general elections and doesn't win more than 1% of the vote. Um, part of the argument that's going on throughout the international far-right that it's possible to wager on this electoralist strategy is actually the success of groups, including the the National Front in Britain. So um, the only reason why, in a sense, it isn't the first or one of the first two, the the only reason why people don't talk about it now is because of what happens at the end of the period of my book, that the very sharp electoral defeat it suffers in 1979. That, That, in a sense closes off what otherwise was a really obvious path that it could have gone down. So I guess, I mean, we've got this electoral threat, you say, it's growing, and we might come on to discuss a little bit how important that electoral threat was or how real it was coming on to, as you say, the 79 elections, but I'm always kind of wary to say, when we're looking at far-right movements, elections is is not the only way we measure success or we measure danger. So tell us a little bit about the other stuff the National Front are up to in the 1970s. Okay. Um... 
one of the things which the National Front is definitely associated with is violence. Um, you know, there are reports of individual members of the National Front um, doing just attacks on just groups of um, Asian people living in the East End. Those reports start becoming a regular feature of the press as early as 1970. Um, and right throughout the decade, there's this, there's this constant phenomenon where the National Front um, operates as a kind of... Um, its presence and its success um, operates as a justification for racists to do perhaps what they were already slightly minded to do anyway, but it makes them do more of it uh, and makes them go further. Um, I think one of the examples I give just literally on the first page of my book um, is an example of a man called Fred Chalice, who's um, active in the um, East End um, in 76, 77. Um, he's eventually prosecuted for killing a homeless Asian person um, and you know, at his trial, he 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 asked for I think um, over a hundred other similar offences to be taken into consideration. It's just plainly an extremely gruesome and brutal individual. When he kills um, this particular um, homeless person, he, he he scrapes on the wall um, an NNF sign. Now, there's no particular suggestion that Fred Chalice was an NF member. That's not that's not necessarily how it works. The National Front. Um, um, has a presence in all sorts of um, working-class estates, in football stadiums, and wherever it's active, uh, in schools, and wherever it's active, the, the amount of um, violent racism goes up. So we've got this kind of toxic mix. We've got violence, a really violent far-right movement. We've got an increasing uh, electoral threat from the National Front as well. Um, tell us about the anti-fascist reaction, I guess. So let's start um, Rock Against Racism, 1976, or maybe if you want to start a little bit before that and tell us why it is that they decide it's needed, who sets it up, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I just want to put in a sentence before going on to Rock Against Racism, just to in, insist that there is an anti-fascist movement that's before the Rock Against Racism. <laughs> this is before really you get, important. Before you get all the letters in, otherwise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, like, you know, Searchlight's been going for several years. There have been anti-fascists involved around trades councils. If, if you think about one of the key tactics of anti tactic of anti-fascists, all anti-fascists in this period, of reproducing the photograph of John Tyndall neo-Nazi uniforms. As far as I can tell, that's developed by um, a trades council in Leicester to deal with the problem of the National Front in 1974. So, you know, there's been lots of other things happen as well. And, and, and you know, what, one of the problems I think often happens on the left is that one tradition says, you know, we claim that decade. <laughs> and you, you look at it, it's not about one tradition or one group. There's been lots of different people at all different points on the Labour spectrum have been dealing um, with this problem and, and with some successes but it but it's kind of there's there's a stasis that, that neither the far right is able to break through beyond that point nor is the, the left able to limit it to any to any level that, that people that on the left would consider acceptable so there's a kind of a stasis and, and what changes that um, the, the first as it were breakthrough I argue in the book is the formation of rock against racism which, which takes place really in the summer of 1976. The key individual is a man called Red Saunders. He's a photographer. Um, he's an actor. Um, if, if, when, um, he's, if you ever meet him, he's a great big bear of a man with a big red bushy beard. Um, I, I remember the first time I met him, he seemed about seven foot tall, frankly. But he's also, what's quite strange, is because he's an actor, um, you know, he, he comes over as quite posh. You know, but the acting he did was sort of this sort of ultra radical left um, avant-garde acting, where you know there'd be a strike and six or seven of them would take a touring thing around the country, <laughs> doing agitprop about the strike. So he comes from this very um, lefty milieu, but also he's serious about cultural politics. And, and for me, that's that's kind of a key thing. Um, none of what I'm about to say in the next few minutes would have worked if it just been the the, the people on the left who do politics. It needed a bunch of people who, who the way they do politics isn't about the written word, isn't about literality, who think kind of creatively and figuratively and, and so on. And that was part of what made Rock Against Racism just feel a bit different from conventional anti-racism or anti-fascism. And so it's just to come in there, so is, is the idea about Rock Against Racism then that we need a, a much broader, much a more societal response and we have to find a way to tap in beyond the trade union councils, beyond the kind of traditional left, because the threat was so large, they had to find a way to reach beyond the traditional anti-fascist movement. Look, by the time people in Rock Against Racism start generating their idea, yeah, that's how they talk about it. And another key individual in Rock Against Racism is a man called David Widgery, who's an East End doctor, and he, he kind of 
adapt he, he, he develops his role in Rock Against Racing where he kind of generalises and propagandises for its model within the movement and that's the sort of thing he'd write but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves I still want to describe sort of where Rock Against Racism came from and what I want to convey is that whatever plans they had a couple of years in at the start this is small this is really really small um, but, but to explain what happened um, so Red Saunders um, is increasingly concerned by what seems to be signs of the right wing doing well in, in music. And some of this is things we really shouldn't expect. For example, David Bowie, you know, heroic on gender politics, um, universally loved these days. But in 76, he's giving interviews for Playboy, talking about how Adolf Hitler was the first rock and roll superstar. He's photographed um, one of the stations in London waving his right arm in what really does look quite suspiciously like a Nazi salute. It wasn't talked about much when he passed, was it, all this? <laughs> no, no, exactly. He, in fairness, he, he, he's been apologetic ever since about what he did, not, not like all the musicians. <laughs> and certainly not like the next guy I'm <laughs> Eric Clapton, who... Um, in 76, he's made his career playing um, R&B, um, a music which has been a music form which has been heavily developed by black musicians, um, covered songs by a number of black musicians, but in summer 76 in Birmingham, interrupts his concert to, play, to make this drunken, slurred um, um, mini-speech saying that um, Enoch Powell was right, we have to kick all the... Um, he uses a race step that kick all the um, black people out of Britain. Um, now that energises Red Saunders to say, right, we've got to do something about this. And he gets together a group of about eight friends and they, and they write a letter to the music press um, saying, you know, who shot the Sheriff Eric? It sure as hell wasn't you. We need a rank and file um, movement against the racist poison and rock music. Um, what I want to emphasise though is firstly, there's no plan at this stage to take on the world or even to take on the National Front. You know, it's just eight people writing a letter. And again, when I say eight people, you know, we'll talk later about the Anti-Nazi League, and this is launched by celebrities, football managers, novelists, playwrights, MPs. The launch letter is signed by a thousand people. With with Red and his letter, it's eight people. One of them is his agent, who, ne- who never does anything since. Three or four of them are people who involve the radical theatre, like him. Um, another person who, who shares a studio with him is, is a jeweller, has no relationship to the left, is never heard of again. You know, this really starts small. Um, so they launch the letter and something like a thousand people respond and, and it becomes clear in no time at all that there's this immense desire amongst people. Yeah, we want something that's going to be musicians and it's going to be against racism. Quite what that's going to mean later, people don't know yet, but just at the start, this touches a raw nerve. And, and sets off, and in no time to you say you've got a thousand people writing in, and they start putting on gigs, they, they launch a fanzine, which soon has a, has a paid sale of 10,000 copies an issue, um, and it's just a bunch of really, really excited people. Um, initially, a lot of them like read photographers, um, artists, designers, writers, later musicians start getting involved too. Um, but back in the sense how Rock and Racing starts. Great, so then... It's kind of up and running, and then I guess one of the interesting questions is the relationship with the Anti-Nazi League, which you touched on in the previous book. Tell us a little bit about this. So Anti-Nazi League comes, is it 1977, a year later? Um, is it the same people? Is it different people? Is it, is it a separate organisation? Is it the same? How are they linked? Tell us the story of the Anti-Nazi League's birth. OK, where, where the Anti-Nazi League comes from is a very different experience which is, it's all about confronting the National Front particularly. So in a sense, the, the racism bit of Rock Against Racism isn't accidental. You know, it's an anti-racism in, in music movement initially, and then it's kind of anti-racism everywhere. But it's racism. The, the Anti-Nazi League is about the far-right National Front uniquely. Um, where this comes from, um, in summer 77, um, there's a National Front demonstration through Lewisham in south-east London, um, it, it ends with this violent confrontation with the National Front um, smashed off the streets. Um, there are about 800 supporters of the National Front there. Their banners ripped up. They, they more or less flee the scene. Few of them gather in a car park. John Tyndall makes this extraordinary downbeat speech saying, look, we're, essentially we're never going to be able to march again unless every police officer in Britain is armed because we, we'll have no hope against the left. It's just going to stop us. So Lewisham ends with the National Front absolutely demoralised but um, 
you know, again, one thing I want to convey, because this isn't, when people tell the story, they miss this part out, and for me it's almost the most important part. When the left takes on the National Front at Lewisham, it is not the case that public opinion goes, oh, well done, all these anti-fascists. Actually, public opinion swings very, very hard. Um, one of the things which happens that night on the news is there's a picture of a, a woman in her 70s, National Front supporter, sobbing on the pavement, unable to stand because she's been attacked, presumably, by teenage left-wingers. You know, this isn't a propaganda victory. And, and in the press that follows... Um, Absolutely everyone is united in terms of saying that the problem is the left. Um, the far left described as red fascists. Um, there are calls to ban all left-wing demonstrations and all left-wing groups. One organisation, and I don't, I don't want to suggest that this is the whole of the left now, but the one particular organisation, um, the International Socialist, today's Socialist Workers' Party, is associated with that far-left demo at Lewisham. Um, and all of this, this kind of hatred and anger, people have gone too far as lumped very much on that. But, but what happens at that point is, is that particular group um, does something which tactically was actually very smart. Is they turn around and say, right, what we need to do is we need to rebuild ties with the rest of the left. You know, the Labour parties in government, um, the left is very, very visible um, in the news. We need to be talking to people in the Labour Party and, and form some sort of alliance with them um, partly just to protect the reputation of anti-fascists. That's actually one of the ideals behind it. So, very quickly, there's an attempt to, to launch this. It goes through key individuals in the Labour Party, including Peter Hayne, Neil Kinnock, and the Anti-Nazi League is formed as a united um, organisation which brings together, um, essentially, it's a deal between SWP and the Labour left, but but because very quickly it's very well built in terms of bringing on celebrities I referred to before, essentially um, very large parts of the rest of the left who are outside that initial compromise feel that it's something they too can come on board and, and be part of. For example, you know, the Communist Party comes on board within a few months. That's important. Um, so it feels like something that's united. Obviously, again, I've, I've keep on mentioning Searchlight magazine, but, but it is important. Searchlight magazine were there, and that includes all the Searchlight, including like all the trade unionists around Morris Ludmer in Birmingham, for example, um, are there. And, and, it, and it, so it's different from Rock Against Racism. Rock Against Racism is a kind of cultural Bolshevik, some of whom are members of the SWP, but it's essentially it's a group of cultural Bolsheviks talking to a bunch of musicians. The Anti-Nazi League is the organisations of the left reaching a compromise on terms which both sides are willing to live with. And so it's fair to say, and this is a sort of left-wing or anti-fascist popular front of sorts, because I mean, some of the discussions you might hear amongst the more sectarian elements of the contemporary anti-fascist movement is these were SWP fronts. I think even if you look, I mean, when I was kind of, I read the book and, and then was looking at some other articles online, quite, you know, there are stuff people out there who just say the A&L, Rockins racism, were mere, merely fronts. Um, your book doesn't seem to argue that. Your book argues that it is a much broader front than that. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's not get into the whole leftist <laughs> alphabet soup discussion about popular fronts, united fronts. You know, there is a discussion to that. But, but the question is, is this an organic unity or is it just something that comes from a part, from one single party? In terms of rock against racism, it's really, really clear. This is not just the SWP. The, the people who, who, who are involved in this, Red Saunders is not a member of the SWP. A bunch of his mates are. Um, but they're a particularly dissident fringe of the SWP. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I give some examples in the book of, of you know, the times when they actually try and talk to the SWP and say, look, you know, we're doing these really exciting things. Do you, do you want to get involved? And um, you know, the, the SWP's founder and leader, um, Tony Cliff, does this very good job to try and read temporary hoardings. Just, I don't understand. Why is all the writing sideways? It just doesn't mean <laughs> you can't calculate or compute. And I don't mean that unkindly about Cliff. It's just... You know, um, this is a bunch of SWP members. The way people would talk about it, and the word they use is freelance, and they're doing their own thing. They're influenced by the traditions of the party, and they're influenced by the traditions of the left. But, but you know, they're not trying to, to dominate it, and, you know, none of them are musicians. No idea. <laughs> you know, 
Rock Against Racism couldn't work if it wasn't for the likes of all the reggae musicians, for the likes of Tom Robinson, all these people going along to meetings, and actually they've got a veto about what's being done. Just to clarify on the Tommy Robinson issue, you mean the band, not the... Yeah, I mean the Tom Robinson band, not to be confused with. Yeah, some people will be thinking, I didn't realise he was involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. There's, I think the Telegraph did a cartoon saying that a few weeks back. It's, you're not the first one to point that out. Yeah. Um, but, but, but the Anti-Nazi League's different. I mean, the Anti-Nazi League... Um, the SWP is heavily involved and it is in a sense SWP is a party trying to shape it. I think what makes this, what makes the Anti-Nazi League different from say, you know, you could talk about stand-up to racism today. I mean, if you were to look at them as a bunch of institutions, they wouldn't look very different. You've got a steering committee, the steering committee is quite mixed uh, in both, both in the 70s and today. The, the, the really big difference is just there are so many people involved in the Anti-Nazi League. It's got something like fifty to 60,000 members. The, the SWP at this point has something like four or 5,000 members. Um, obviously, in the steering committee, the SWP is, I think it's one or two out of 12 people. But, you know, you can run things while having a broader steering committee. That's true. <laughs> but, but, but it just really is, 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 the, is the sense right from the start that this has to be something which the Labour Party is on board with. And essentially, there's a, there's a continuous process where decisions are going up to um, Peter Haynes for the Labour Party, Paul Holborough for ISSWP, and, you know, if, if Paul Holborough thinks SWP wants to do X and, and Peter Haynes says it's not going to happen, then it is not going to happen. <laughs> OK. Uh, well, that's that one dealt with. Um, so, moving on. So, Rock Against Racism starts in seventy six. You say it's this tiny group of people... Um, you know, signing a single letter, it starts small. By 1978, we have the two enormous carnivals. Uh, one at the beginning of the year is April, one towards the end of the year, September. Or um, These are huge events. Tell us the story of these events, because when people think about Rock Against Racism, they think about the battle against the National Front. This is often yeah. what comes into their heads. What were they? Who played, even? You mentioned Tommy Robinson, but, you know, uh, tell us that <laughs> Tom story. Robinson. Tom Robinson. Tell us the story about the, that car- those carnivals. OK. Look, I'll, I'll just do the first one, because mm. that, that's enough detail. <laughs> the first carnival starts with um, with, with the idea of one person who's, who's around um, anti-Nazi who said, look, I think we should have a musical event. Um, and, and he talks to the people, and he's like, yeah, yeah, what we should do is we should get a bunch of bands and we should put them on a lorry at the back, maybe drive the lorry along Oxford Street and lots of people would see, and that would be a good way of getting um, music in, involved in the movement. Um, so they go along to Rock and Stress and say, can you, can you put us in touch with some musicians to do it? And Rock and Stress races and people have put on you know, several dozen gigs, some in, in the high hundreds of people, but not, they're not, they haven't yet broken through. Mm-hmm. Rock and Stress go, look, this is a great idea. But can we just be a bit more ambitious? <laughs> um, so they go along to Tom Robinson, who's had a whole bunch of number one hits um, at this point. It seems to be like the big thing that's established as a big left musician in the period. They go along to bands like X-Ray Specs, a young up-and-coming um, punk band. They go along to, um, to Steel Pulse, who, who, um, who's, who's played the same song, um, KKK, it's all about you know, race in Britain today. They, they go along, um, crucially, to The Clash, who are the band that, that's um, representing this particular moment in the history of punk. They've had the Sex Pistols, they've put on their... Um, you know, they've had their breakthrough moment with Bill Grunshaw, but they've also collapsed. And some, what news coming through? What news coming through is, is Clash, who, who are kind of open to the influences of black, black music and, and feel to be the liveliest and most exciting. And the next thing, in the sense, thing that hasn't quite broken yet, but is about to... Um, and they go for the biggest bands. And, you know, you know, in my in my book, I, I give some examples of the stories about the Clash and you know, Bernie Rhodes, their intensely annoying um, manager, sort of um, you know, being delighted that he's been approached for what could be quite a big gig, but really quite offended that no one's actually suggesting that the Clash are going to headline it and saying, <laughs> no, we'll, "We'll do it if you buy tanks for Zimbabwe and other such craziness." Frankly. Um, so they put on the gig. They put on the gig, and, and the idea is that you start off with March. March goes through the East End, obviously, in a sense, the main place in London where the National Front got its electoral success. Goes through Hackney to Victoria Park, and one of the one of the stories that, that, that I, I was dug up in my book was the story of just this um, um, one of, of one person rocking racism committee 
um, knows that the person who owns the, sh- the shop on the street they're marching along is actually um, an old Jewish woman who's been there now for eighty years, forty years, going back to the Battle of Cable Street uh-huh. even, and it's just describes you know standing outside and chatting with her for hours and hours, just watching as tens of thousands of people march past, and they're feeling like well, you know we've got the people now. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's not always been great these last few years, but we've got the people now. Um, and there's all stories, you know, there's, there's some supporters of the National Front drinking in their regular pub, the Blade Bone, the Bones. They're thinking they're going to jeer at the lefties, and then, oh my God, there really, really are so many of them. <laughs> there's so many fewer of us. Um, carnival happens, it gets something like 100,000 people. Um, and then obviously the second repeated at the end of the year, even on a larger scale, gets something like 150,000 people. And, and there are local carnivals in each local area too. The big point I want to make about this is really this. Um, sometimes on the left, we kind of have this idea that the way you sort out fascism and anti-fascism is you essentially get all our hard cases and all their hard cases. You get everyone in a big field, and each set of people just fights, and then one emerges victorious. <laughs> now, now, maybe you could just about tell the story of Lewisham like that if you want to, but, but really, you know, take this to BP. The SWP at this point has something like 3,000 members and probably getting on for half of them women, quite a high proportion of them are people might the age I am now, so mid-40s, you know, yeah. not people who are looking forward to a fight. The National Front has 17,500 members, very, very high proportion of men, quite a high proportion young, quite a high proportion skinheads. If it had been just a fight between a bunch of lefties and the right, the right would have won hands down. The reason why the carnivals matter is they bring into the train, as it were, a whole bunch of people who aren't people who talk politics, think politics, obsess about politics, even obsess about the National Front. But at that moment, they get it. And from then on, in every area, the balance of forces is different and it's favourable to the left. That's why the carnivals matter. And so, not maybe an unfair question, but how do we know if we're thinking about concerts? I think, I mean, maybe we'll come on to this when we're talking about slightly more contemporary debates about tactics, but... When we're talking about concerts, how many people want to go see The Clash? Mm. And how many people care about anti-fascism at these things? And uh, this sounds like a more pointed question than it is. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely yeah. asking it, what sort of work's being done on this in terms of interviews, and maybe, I don't know. But what percentage of those people came away fired up about anti-fascism? What percentage saw, saw a great gig and go home? Okay. Um, look... It's very hard. You know, when you're trying to interview people and work things out at distance from time, there, there's all sorts of problems. There's always the problem that, you know, right, I'm going to find 100 people who went to the carnival, interview them about what happened afterwards. It's much easier to find, you know, people who went to the carnival and describe. There's something like a dozen people who will tell you um, that was the first political demonstration I went on in my life and went on to become trade union general secretaries. Yeah. Their interviews were all on record. It's possible to find them. Because it's easy to find them, it's not easy to find the people who actually were just going on for the band. So it's, it's kind of a hard thing to do, and I'm really not pretending there's a scientific way of doing this. What I, what I do think is a bit of a sign, though, is for the organisers, the, the, the idea they had in their mind was, essentially, how many people are going to go to the carnival and how many people are going to go to the march beforehand? Because... Carnival's in Victoria Park. The assembly point beforehand is in Trafalgar Square. That's one hell of a long march. And their assumption was that, in essence, they'd get maybe one in five people would start off in Trafalgar Square and march the whole way. And they just thought most people would show up for the bands at the end. Actually, it was the other way around. Something like two-thirds or three-quarters of people came along, saved the march, joined in the slogans, get there at the end. The number of people who just go straight to the, to the carnival is tiny. And, and that, for me, is a sign that people going along to this is a political thing rather than just passively to be entertained. Cool. So we've got these two enormous concerts. Um, this brings us on to, I guess, the big, the crunch year, the central year of this story. But, you know, also in the book, obviously there's a big chunk of the book as well, 1979. Um, we've got, is it, there's, there's still more Rock Against Racism, there's the Militant Tour. Um, but there's also the two big events, I guess, from an anti-fascist perspective. We have the, the killing of Blair Peach, and we have the 1979 general election. Um, maybe if we could start with the story of Blair Peach, start, uh, a little mm. bit about that, and then we can come on to the big section on the, on yeah. the, the election. Yeah, I mean, I mean, bear in mind, you, you talk about this as two things, but they, they take place within days of each other. Yeah. Blair Peach is killed at Southall um, a week or two before the general election. 
um, why is the National Front in Southall holding an election meeting there? Um, and obviously, both these moments, we're talking about the general election, which actually is going to win, which ushers in, in Britain, this whole lurch to the right in our politics. Um, and I think for, for any number of the key participants, um, the fact that politics is going in this right-wing direction and shaping everything, they're conscious of that. Um, for me, one of the things which brings that out really beautifully is the title of the book David Widgery later wrote about this period called it Beating Time. And that's not just beating time in a musical sense. It's beating time in the sense of those were looking like dark and down times. People got that. Um, which I think is quite important because, you know, often when you look back at the past, there's a temptation to say, well, you know, they did quite well, but they were an easy moment and our moment's harder. Um, <laughs> no, this, this was always going to be a hard moment. This was a moment where the Labour government is going down the pan, where, um, where there are strikes, there's a winter of discontent, but there's a whole sense that, that you know, is that the trade unions against the Labour government? Is, is the working, British working class almost like turning in on itself? And that, that mood's there, and that's part of where Thatcherism comes from. So, doing Blair Peach first. Um, the National Front try and hold this election meeting in Southall. The two things to note about this election meeting, you know, Southall. Southall has um, a large um, migrant um, Sikh population from India. Obviously, people now are talking about second generation, not just first generation, but second generation as well. So, so black British as well. But you're talking about a political community which doesn't just have its politics from the British context and from its own struggles against racism, for example. There's been a, the, the racist murder of, of a youngster, Gurdip Singh Chaga, just a couple of years before. But it's also about it's drawn its politics from the subcontinent. There, there was one survey of, um, of um, Sikh residents of Southall done um, at the start of the 1970s and asked how many were members of the Indian Workers' Association and found that something like 64% of all men were. And, of course, the Indian Workers' Association is itself a loose cultural association, but essentially is, is a, an organisation of the Indian Communist Party. So it's a very left community. Um, and, and that means that, that... And, of course, it's also part of the context of the National Front turnout on March and so on has been shrinking very fast since they had that disaster at Lewisham. So you get, in terms of anti-fascists, in terms of the numbers, you get almost the ideal state. There are literally... 20 to 30 members of the National Front and not more in that election meeting. And there's 8,000 members of a politicised black community. Yes, some white lefties there too, but essentially community mobilisation against them, outnumbering them 40 to 1. You know, you'd have thought, those are the odds we quite like. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Um, The problem is that it's an election meeting and the police are absolutely determined to keep this meeting open. So, So... the National Front coach is, is driven in, police are fighting around, trying to disperse the crowd. Um, there's this various skirmishes, but essentially it's, it's a very, very high level of police violence. And um, towards the end of the evening, after many, many, many people have reported being struck on the head by police batons, um, Blair Peach is, um, is struck um, as we're running away from the from South of Town Hall where the meeting's taking place and running away from the police lines. He's struck as he, at the back of his head as he flees. Um, he is um, in his mid-30s. He's from New Zealand. He's a teacher and he sends teachers, kids with special needs. Um, he's a former poet. One of the things which, which goes on in the next few years is loads of people write poems in his memory, which is kind of nice. I don't think people actually knew he was a poet when they did that, but he was a poet. Um, and people obviously write songs. There's a famous Linton Quasi Johnson song in his memory. So one of the things which, which anti-fascists have to deal with is the shock of this death and then trying to get the police to be held accountable for it. And that's their next focus. Is that South or Blair Peach? The next thing that happens, of course, is... Just, just before we, we yeah. move off Blair Peach, in the book, it's really interesting because, as you say, there's, there's lots of really new information in the book mm. through the archives that you found about the killing, about the inquest and subsequently... Could you just tell us a little bit about that? What's changed in terms of what's come to light, what you've found on that? Um, I think lots of people would be really interested in that. Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> um, in, in about, I forget the exact date, but it's something like 2010, the government released um, the police inquiry into the killing of Blair Page. Now, when that came out, people remember that was news in itself. 
and there were various um, attempts to um, identify the main um, or the main suspect for the killings, which you can do from the report. What I've tried to do, originally the piece I published in the London Review of Books um, about three or four years ago, and then, again, I've taken that material and sort of revisited it a bit for this book, is trying to explain why the police had a chief suspect. Now, I don't really want to go into that too much in this interview because, you know, the person who I say was the chief suspect is a person who's still alive, um, who's gone on to have a public career... Um, and, you know, the book stands for itself, and I don't want to augment it and add to it here for, for I hope, understandable reasons. Um, but but I, I just want to say, I mean, I mean, while we're doing this interview, um, I'm a barrister, we're doing it in my chambers. Um, members of my chambers were amongst the barristers who represented Blair Peach at that inquest. Um, I've talked to them, and I've seen how they appear in, in the records of that inquest. One of the things that, that happened there, which, was, which today we find extraordinary and shocking, was the coroner who was in charge of the inquest said to the jury, we know we've got a very detailed police account of who the police believed did the killing, but you're not allowed to see it. I refuse to let you see it because this may prejudice what you're going to say. And then when it was put to... Then when he tried to get the... He gave his summing up to the inquest before they went out. He said to them, some people tell you a police officer killed Blair Peach. That is an extreme theory. And he indicated them as strongly as possible they mustn't, couldn't find that, when actually it was the only possible explanation. And if the jury had had that report, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that they would have found um, a verdict of unlawful killing which would have led to the prosecution of the police officers who killed Blair Peach. So, so that really is something that's extraordinary and, you know, um, it remains an issue um, which, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's an ongoing sore on the conscience of the British legal system. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that. So that brings us from one sad, depressing moment to um, another. It's 1979, the election. Um, tell us a little bit. This is a big election for the National Front. Is it 303 candidates that are standing? I mean, this is huge. Um, big national fear about this. or you know, But also, tell us about the election. How do they get on? Um, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about why it is they got on in that way, if you will. Yeah, sure. The first thing to say is that for the National Front, this election, um, was, was they gambled everything on it. National Front had um, lots of publicity, had been in the news because of various um, scare stories about migration to this country. They'd had big influx of new membership. They'd also had the crisis caused by repeated confrontation, both both the physical confrontation, but also the, the, in the sense the propaganda confrontation associated with the anti-Nazi. Every time they stood there, there'd be leaflets denouncing them, and and so it was an organisation which was absolutely a crisis but settled on a, on a gamble to avert the crisis which is they were going to do really well in the 1979 election. I mean you talked about standing 303 candidates you know that's enormous um, cost because um, every single one of them requires a deposit and for the, for the whole of the rest of the period you know the whole of the rest of the year the National Front's doing nothing other than fundraising retrospectively for all the money they've lost by standing that number of candidates. Um, so the National Front gambles everything, and there's this kind of promise from the leadership, we will get the breakthrough that will make up the two or three difficult years that we've had. They stand all this number of candidates, but they do exceedingly badly. They get an average of about 1% of the vote. That itself isn't that interesting. What's really striking is when you compare their votes in places where they've stood before and then they stand again in 1979. Because, you know, as I've, I've said before, you know, some of the places they stood in by-elections are places they've got 16% of the vote. Where the National Front stood before and stands again in 1979, its vote shrinks. It never shrinks by less than half, and in most places it shrinks by around three-quarters. And such is that scale of decline that it becomes absolutely unmissable. It's not something you can hide or pretend away. Afterwards, for the rest of the year, the National Front's in crisis. The leadership turns in on itself. Um, Tyndall tries to depose Webster, um, splits away, announces his party's the new, na- the new National Front, which becomes the BNP. 
Um, actually, there are a whole series of splits, and the organisation basically implodes in, in double quick time. By the end of the year, there are at least three different parties all claiming to be the success of the National Front. It's a bit like the National Front now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but, but from a bit of a higher place. Yeah, yeah, from a higher place, yeah. Um, so this is the big question. Right? I mean, this is, a, this is a fundamentally important moment in the history of post-war British fascism, right? The collapse in 79, as you say. Mm-hmm. The fallout of this goes on to be the BNP, and, uh, but really important central moment so the question has to become why right? why does why do they perform so badly in 1979 and the obvious question I guess is in this book is what role did the anti-Nazi league or Rock Against Racism as well can they take credit for this I guess is the simple question yeah look I, I think I think it, it's really posed as an alternative it's who killed the National Front was it Margaret Thatcher or was it the anti-Nazi league that, that's really the that's debate the in the literature now, the, the argument that it was Margaret Thatcher, I want to start off by saying this is not a stupid or a daft or an incredible argument. Um, in the run-up to 1979, Margaret Thatcher had, had given an interview, um, I think at the instigation of her then-advisor, Nigel Lawson, um, so it was something she'd done deliberately. It wasn't a stumble. She'd given an interview in which she said that, that many white people in Britain felt they were being swamped by alien cultures. And then, being, then she was challenged again in various other interviews two or three times to withdraw the word swamped, but she didn't. She said it again. Um, when she said it, um, there's no doubt that, um, that her popularity in opinion polls um, spiked after that. And there's no doubt also that that was one of the reasons why the National Front's vote fell. In a sense, if you wanted to vote for an electoralist racist who's going to promise the repatriation of black people from Britain, well, the Conservative Party wasn't necessarily saying that it was going to do repatriation, but it certainly was saying that it was going to make borders tougher. So that gave you, as it were, a reason to return to the fold. And anyone who says, you know, it's just the anti-Nazi, plainly it's wrong. There's a context, and Thatcher is part of the context. On the other hand, um, for various reasons, I just don't think it can be all or even mainly Thatcher. Probably the best short argument, I think, is this. From 1968 onwards, in fact, probably from 1964 onwards, a series of Conservative politicians had promised to to, um, be ultra-hard on immigration. You know, you think about the 1964 election at Smethwick, you think about, you know, power with his rivers of blood speech, you think about the ways that was endlessly repeated by power through 68, 70, 72. He got every opportunity. Actually, he did talk about repatriation. There had been a series of moments when the Conservative Party had promised it would be ultra-hard on this issue. None of those had stopped the National Front from growing. In fact, in 68, Enoch um, Powell's speech is exactly, um, it's taking place at exactly the same time as the launch of the National Front, and it's part of the context of why the National Front's able to grow quite fast in its first year. So if it was just as simple as a right-wing politician makes a racist speech and then the far-right's vote collapsed, then the whole previous ten years doesn't make sense. Um, to my mind, the best explanation goes something like this. The national... When Thatcher starts talking about swamping, this doesn't have the effect of generally making the National Front appear popular as part of a general phenomenon of politics going to the right. The reason why it doesn't is because the National Front has stopped looking like a legitimate normal party. It's become beyond the pale. It's become beyond the pale because it's associated with violence and with extremism. It's gone beyond the pale because of these, these whole things I've been talking about in terms of the combination of the physical confrontations with the National Front, its association with violence, and the political confrontations with the National Front. People winning the argument in local areas that, that the, the National Front candidate was the candidate of fascism in that town. That argument's largely been won by 79, unlike 76. And it's the combination of that. Thatcher, as it were, is the, is the opportunity for the National Front to collapse. But the underlying driver is that the National Front is no longer considered a normal, legitimate party anymore. So, I mean, when I, uh, when I found out we were going to be doing this interview, I sent out a message to various colleagues, comrades, friends, some of whom were involved at the time, some of whom have been involved subsequently, and asked, kind of said, asked their opinions, especially on the ANL and this election. And a number of things come back. I mean, I say some people did point to Thatcher, and it's important. I, I actually agree with you on this in terms of, I think, generally speaking, the history is pretty clear. Mainstream parties running to the right on these issues is, if, if anything, a very short-term tactic and sometimes not effective at all. Um, other people pointed to the idea that the National Front wasn't 
I mean, the best way to understand why it failed in 1979 it was that it was never going to not fail in 1979. It was a party in turmoil already. It had major internal problems. It was a bit of a joke in terms of organisation. And actually, the threat it posed was a violent one. It was a physical threat in that period. And so, if we're talking about the defeat of the National Front, it's a, it was the militant tradition. I mean, you know, the ANL had some of that, of course, but it was the militant, it was the squads, it was the street fighters... Um, they beat the National Front, and the electoral success of 1979 is, is almost like her looking the wrong way. They were never going to win that election, but they mm. were beat off the streets. Okay. There's no way in which the National Front would have won, won that election. I mean, for, for a party to win a general election... I don't mean win the general election. No, 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 but there's a point. In, it's in terms of helps us to think about what the task of anti-fascists is in any period. Um... It seems to me that, that, that at any period till the point where, where far-right and properly fascist bits of the far-right are actually seriously challenging for power, till we get to that point, and you know, you know the depressing thing that, that a lot of us have in our head is that we're living in a moment where that possibility seems a lot closer than it did even than 40 years ago, frankly. But essentially, till we get to that point, all these battles are preliminary battles. All you're trying as anti-fascist in any period to do, whether you're the 43 group, whether you're... Um, the anti-fascist sixties, whether you're the anti-Nazi league, whether you're people in the eighties or nineties, say what you're trying to do is make sure that the, that the far right is capped beyond beneath a certain figure, so that its chances in the next period of growing to the next stage are also reduced. We're fighting a long battle, and we're fighting a battle that you know it may be that we that we feel the victory in forty or fifty years' time. Um, so, from that perspective. Um, could the national, you know, if you think about, say, the electoral success which the British National Party had in the 2000s, could the National Front have had that level of success in the 1980s? I don't think the National Front was in such a state of turmoil that it was that that was closed off. Actually, it had um, very considerable membership. Actually, um, since 1974, the leadership had been relatively settled. There are, there are a bunch of things about the group which were relatively stable given that you're only talking about a party of 17,000 members. Yeah? Yeah. Now, in terms of the, the, the point that the issue is really violent, the argument there is slightly different. The way I'd see it is this. There's a connection between political success and violence. I gave the example earlier of Fred Schultz. He's not a National Front member, mm. but the success of the far right gives him the justification to be violent. Um, Something that parallels people will be pointing to North America right now. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Um, so if we think about the 70s, and, and it, it's not as simple as just the National Front represents just violence, and it was defeated just by physical confrontation. Physical confrontation is part of the story of its defeat, but the political confrontation is too. Um, it mattered that the National Front's vote fell. It meant that as the 80s wore on, you know, it start, the 1980s starts off with a huge um, wave of, you know, ex-NF members trying to, or, or NF members, in fact, in some cases, NF organisers, <laughs> trying to blow up left-wing bookshops, physically attack targets. But as the decade wears on, it's less and less and less of that because there are fewer and fewer people who identify with the far right. That political defeat had a difference, made a difference. So let's come on, I guess, to the, the end of this and the conclusions, both in the book and, and a bit of reflection on the ANL and Rock Against Racism. Um, I guess the question is, I mean, the anti-fascist movement we're very, very good at. So we hold up these moments, we hold up these groups, we hold up these battles, these struggles, whether you know, it's 30, you know, Cable Street, Lewisham, the ANL, um, and we romanticise them. And, and, and the legacy, I think, is for all of these things can be both positive and negative. It can be wonderful for mobilising new generations. It's the reason people I got involved was a lot of these hearing these stories. But alternatively, they can be constraining because it works then, it will work again. I wanted to come to one, well, I guess, one interesting... Well, let's actually just basically ask, what's the legacy of the Anti-Nazi League? What's the legacy and, and is it still important? Should we still be looking at it as a... Well, to my mind, um, the legacy is just... It shows its... Po- you know, all the way through the 1970s, the problem was you had all these racist moments around Kenyan um, migrants, Ugandan migrants, Malawian migrants, and every time that there seemed to be a racist scare, it seemed that popular opinion, the majority of people in Britain were, were demanding that there should be more exclusionary measures and there should be more racism, in effect, more state racism. 
What the anti-Nazi demonstrates is the first time in post-war British history, which demonstrates really clearly there is also a majority to be found of people who are against immigration control, who are against attacks on migrants. So for me, the exciting bit of the anti-Nazi is just that, that it shows you can build it. Where, where the other stuff you're saying, where I really agree, is that people need, need to take that general message, but the more you try and copy the specifics of any period of anti-fascist struggle, the more likely you are to get it wrong. And just take different examples. You know, about the proudest moment in anti-fascist history is Cable Street. The lesson of Cable Street is that if fascists and far-right try to march into a mixed um, area with a large ethnic minority population, whatever that ethnic minority is, you can mobilise a certain way within that as a community and you can be the majority and you can defeat the fascists. All right, great lesson. But in the last two years, where have the far-right been? They've been in the sterile zone of central London. You know, they've been there where there's, let alone whether there's a black community or a Jewish community, there's just no community. Yeah. <laughs> and in those circumstances, say, right, we're going to organise a community mobilisation against them. That's just not going to work. Now, if even Cable Street isn't the complete example which solves everything, e- even more so with, with the anti-Nazi League. And maybe I, I just want to sort of talk about a couple of things, and these things which, which sort of trouble me. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting I've got answers, I'm not suggesting the movement's got answers, but they're things I think we need to be... Um, conscious of. The first is this. Um, when anti-fascism happened in the 70s, this is post-war, there's a very large number of people who at the start don't really get what kind of party the National Front is. But over time, they're not going to have a problem with the argument that confronting fascists violently is okay. Yeah. Because they did it, their parents did it, their brothers and sisters did it. Um, it's harder today, not merely because those people aren't around, but also because the far right's further distanced from fascism. And therefore, you know, the idea that just physical confrontation will do it, physical confrontation will definitely expose the far right as fascists, that's not a given anymore, the way that it was to some extent a given 40 years ago. And I think people have to be conscious of that. Um, the other thing that, that, that's kind of troubling is, you know, I've, I've talked about rock against racism being able to pull on certain long-term cultural dynamics that were really favourable to the, to, to the young generation to the left, the black and white people come together like, you've got a second generation black British people here, you've got white people who've been to school with black British people who are really excited by the prospect of black and white music scenes coming together and this forming a new thing that's going to go to things like two-tone and the specials all that's great but what's our cultural moment? How do we get those extra bunch of people on the field so it's not just the left against the right, but we've pulled in a whole set of people? Weirdly, it feels like the right's able to do that through the presence they have on Reddit, YouTube, and online. That magnifies them. And there's not yet anything that's, that plays that equivalent function for the left. Now, it'd be lovely to say, right, everyone's all got to do this. You know, I'm not pretending that I know what that is. But I'm saying that somehow we have to have something which changes the balance in the same way. Um, but but I'm, one thing I'm absolutely clear about in my own head is it's not just going to be, you know, getting Mick Jones out of retirement to play another big concert. That's not going to be it. I agree. And, and I think, you know, music's changed, the way people consume music has changed, and that sounds like a non-connected point. But I think the idea that having these kind of huge societal music moments, you know, like when these hundreds of thousands of people... I'm not sure that's possible anymore. To, but I wanted to pick up... And I, and I agree with agree with everything you've said there. Uh, and the challenges are, are really stark because of a lot of these. Because I don't think many people have answers on this. I wanted to pick up one really maybe slightly pernickety point from a hope not hate perspective <laughs> in, your, in your conclusion. Um, and I, I wrote it down the other day. And you argue that the BNP in the struggle, and this is in your conclusion, you say collapsed under the weight of its own incompetence and the effect of competition from UKIP and the Conservatives, you call Barking and Dagenham the kind of the exception to that, but you say the campaigns of the last 15 years have been in consequence less than the anti-fascism of the 1970s, they're mere echo, conjuring the spirits and names of past generations and um, now obviously I got in, I first got involved in, in Dagenham right? I quit my job, moved, um, moved out there to campaign for there and have been at Hope Not Hate kind of ever since and in one sense, I understand the point you're making there, right? Now, this, I'm not here to make sectarian arguments. I'm really, I'm really not. Um, but I think there have been, exactly as you say, reincarnations of old battles, using old tactics and old struggles in new situations. And the BNP, and I always think, when I remember when I first got involved, there was like a Love Music concert in Trafalgar Square. And on the same day, the British National Party were in Dagenham knocking on doors. 
And to me, this was, it felt like we were fighting an old war, you know, um, with the wrong tactics. Um, but actually, I thought that if we looked at, uh, first of all, I don't see Data Barking and Dagenham as the exception of the anti-BNP struggle. I think actually there was staggering work done in Burnley, in Stoke, and, and long-term community work that actually was really cutting edge and was really different to more traditional anti-fascist tactics. Um, and I think maybe outside of those traditions that came directly through things like Love, Music, Hate, Racism, which was Rock Against Racism or Unite Against Fascism, the Anti-Nazi League, I think the broader anti-fascist movement, I think there was some really cutting-edge work that was done that was also in a scale that was probably even larger than the 1970s. M- millions of pieces of literature, certainly much better funded. Um, so I was just interested in, in, in that point there, obviously, and this is not just saying I think Hope Not Hate did great work, and, but, but partly I am saying that. Um, and so I was, just, I was intrigued by your point there where you felt that it was the, the anti-fascist struggle of that period and the de- destruction of the BNP would be better put down to its own incompetence and the role of UKIP and the Tories, but your argument in the book about the late 70s is that it was about the anti-fascist movement and not about the Tories and not about uh, the, their own incompetence. What, why are they different? I guess. Okay, look, look, first of all, I really don't want to um, undermine um, the work people did. Um, you know, for example, in the 2000s, I was in Sunderland. You know, I met some really amazing people during that thing, during that time, and I was proud of the relatively small things that I was able to do. Um, I, I have to admit, I was outside the Hope Not Hate campaigns. So I, I read about them from distance. One thing that I would love to see, absolutely love to see, um, is actually some sort of thing that, that actually told that story properly and, and the way you're, you're doing it now you know talking about it as a mass movement actually talking about it as a kind of um, as a kind of knowledge of technique which people perhaps in other groups or in other countries or wherever could learn from and that you know if, if for example you know people who were involved in that campaign were brought together and encouraged to tell their story properly so that other people could learn from it I think that would be amazing and I'd be well up for that it's just what I don't want to what I don't like is that is is is, and what I was kind of trying to argue against. Maybe I, I was sort of arguing too much against myself, as it were. But but what I don't like is a is a story which just basically sees every iteration of anti-fascism is essentially the same thing. You know, the same way you know you can tell that the anti-Nazi was or wasn't a popular front just by looking at SDTR. Well, actually, one was on a mass scale and one wasn't. Yeah. Um, you can tell whether you can tell that the 1990s was a victory, you know, that we caused it because the BNP collapsed. And I, I think, um, you know, if someone wants to persuade me that it was it was it was because of the I'd love to believe that's true, and I'll absolutely buy that. Um, from where I was, it did it did look to me that there were that the balance was different compared to the 70s. That um, you know that, that Griffin was a really, really, really detested leader, even during the period of his ascendance, much more so even than Tyndall. That, you know, that they had moments which, to some extent, were self-inflicted. I'm thinking, you know, the question time and how Griffin came over and how sleazy and how shady he seemed. Um, In what was his real moment of opportunity and how there's no real equivalent to that from the 70s. So, So all I was really trying to do was say, don't read off... The answer, you know, was it Thatcher or the anti-Nazi? They don't think it's going to be the same yeah. in a different period. I'm, I'm totally open to persuasion. No, no, well, maybe, maybe there's, there's the next book. Hey? There's my <laughs> I think I'll set out to prove it. But um, I want to finish on, you have another book coming out, yeah. um, which I've, I've had the pleasure of reading. It's, it's not out yet. Uh, and there's a huge amount in it that I think chimes with a lot of the analysis that, that we've been doing at Hope Not Hate. I think there's a huge amount of agreement in terms of the contemporary nature of the threat. Um, this podcast will be coming out uh, at the same sort of time as we'll be releasing The State of Hate, which is our yearly report on all the different threats we're facing. And, and in there, we talk about Tommy Robinson. Right? We talk about this last year where actually we've seen a number of street demonstrations, probably the largest since the 1930s, maybe even. Um, 10,000 people, if not more, on the streets, surrounded by a far-right leader. Um, and I, But I think we're going to make the argument that this is not the same as previous threats. It's not a carbon copy. Um, it's shouting Nazi or fascist at these people on the streets. Um, they have Churchill tattoos. Tommy Robinson himself has a Churchill tattoo. They come out of a different tradition. And, um, and I think there's a real danger that, once again, 
the mo- our movement might end up trying to fight this really important new struggle with old tactics. Um, and I think this is something that's really interesting in your new book. So maybe if you could just kind of finish up by telling us what's the new book, what's it about, and when can people get their hands on it? Um, it's called The New Authoritarians. It's published by Pluto, and it'll be out in April. Um, I'd very much love to come back and talk about it. I'm sure we will, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, honestly, if I tried to, to summarise it all then... Um, it won't work. But but one thing I, I do want to say is, is the books were, were absolutely written in, in tandem. Mm. You know, I was very conscious of the arguments in one when I was writing um, the other. Um, uh, you know, I was born in 1972. I, I, was, I was too young to be um, directly involved in things I'm talking about when I talk about the Anti-Nazi League. But I'm old enough to have a sense of what the 1970s felt like. You know, the way in which every, you know... Comics, children's books, children's novels, TV, films, music, even like the physical terrain of British cities at that time, meant that the war was unmissable. And that meant something in terms of, in terms of the way in which the far right coalesced around fascism. If, if ultimately you were just a really unpleasant person who wanted to beat up other people and liked racism... The step to fascism was a really easy and simple step to make. There were so many things in your physical and, and social environment to, to give that as an option. And we're living in a different period now. You know, we're living in a period that's post-9-11. We're living in a period where they've got different models. We're living in a period where there isn't that, that same continuity with the 30s as before. And, and just to summarise it in a single sentence, all, all I'm saying in that other book is just as you've been saying as you put the question to me, um, we've got to be much more flexible. We've got to look much more seriously at what the far right actually is doing now. And we really can't, we really won't um, defeat it just by assuming either A, that it is exactly the same threat as it was last time, or B, that, that you know, as you say, shouting slogans from a different period will have an effect. You know, it, what seems to happen in front of our eyes is actually they give the people encouragement, they laugh it off, we're the ones who, who, who seem ridiculous. So, so all the message of that book is not give up, far right can't be defeated. The message differently is actually, look, these people are absolute creeps and bastards. <laughs> They're already doing tremendous, awful things. You know, take, take, take Trump. Trump's obviously not a fascist, but Trump's already jailing kids at the, the, the US border and breaking up families. That's what you have a go at him for. That's bad enough. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for giving us uh, so much of your time. It's much appreciated. Um, for everyone who's listening, pl- I mean, it really is worth it. It's a, it's a great read. Never Again is the first book by Dave Renton out on Routledge. And you can get, uh, we'll put a link in the description so you can kind of, you can go out and get a copy of that. And we'll definitely be having you back to talk about the next book when that comes out because uh, there's even more to talk about for, for then. So thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Look forward to it.